The following message is presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Now the message. All right, good morning. We're going to be in Romans 12. I skipped three chapters on purpose. I skipped through 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11 are uh, chapters that deal with the position of and the, the situation of the nation of Israel and what Israel is, uh, how it relates to them, all this gospel preaching that Paul is talking about in uh, the book of Romans. He gets very specific for three chapters. The reason I did that is because we have, uh, coming up in March, some visiting pastors uh, with Brother Bo that are from Israel. So uh, we'll have them speaking on this issue, and then I want to come back after they've done some talking and see what gaps uh, might need to be filled in after that. We know the first chapters, first 11 chapters of Romans is very theological, very, it's, it's about the establishment, the doctrine of who we are, how we should live out our life. We all have a doctrine. You have a doctrine. I have a doctrine. What you've decided, this is how I'm going to live. This is what I'm going to, uh, to be. And it dictates how you live your life from here on out. So Paul lays out real clearly how we're to live in these chapters. And it's probably the best. I've read of two, a couple of different pastors. One pastor preached on this book so long that he didn't finish the book. He died. That's possible, by the way. Uh, another one did several years in the book of Romans. The pastor that, uh, that I know personally in this bunch that's a writer, he, uh, he preached for nine months through the book of Romans. And that's very deeply and, um, and intricately stepping through verse by verse. And today we're going to do that a little bit. Today we're going to look just at two verses, two very familiar verses, verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. I tried to do Romans 12, 1 through 13, and I could not get it together in just one message. There's just too much going on. And it's not that it's not the content that's the issue. It's the impact of the words that are said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, possibly even on me personally. Listening to these verses caused me a little bit of shudder down in my deepest part of my soul, maybe uh, shake up a little bit about my personal doctrine. So we're going to have to do some things today. Uh, we're going to have to, um, to, you're going to need to do something for me. You're going to have to do the best you can to slide your feet up under the chairs in front of you. Okay, slide them out as far as you can because you're going to get your toes stepped on today. I wore my uh, best boots I have that are toughest. They're not still toes, but they're close uh, because uh, this passage not only affects those that hear the message, it absolutely affects the one preaching the message. I deal with this often. I, uh, at work, we've uh, there's something interesting that's happened at my job that I, I was surprised at. We've evolved over time, uh, evolved in what's been appropriate and how to dress when you come to work. When I first started out uh, in uh, collegiate ministry, I worked in Texas, and the guys that worked on the campuses had to wear dress pants and a shirt and a tie to a college campus every day. And that was, you were dealing with students, they were coming from class, they were wearing shorts and a t-shirt, uh, that's the life that they live, but that job said you have to dress that way. 
So when I got, I was graduating seminary, I got three offers. And of those three offers, uh, I took the one that didn't require that. It said you could dress a little more appropriate for the culture that you're in. So uh, I was able to wear polo shirts and khakis, which I was fine with. I was happy with that. I didn't quite relate to them, but it was a little more comfortable. And it did relate to them a little bit better than the, the tie and dress pants. So it, that has changed. At work now, we've been under, uh, where I work, we've been under a business casual. Business casual. Do you all know what business casual is? Nobody does. If you figured it out, you need to write it down because I know our employees haven't figured that out. Business casuals meant what I think it means is you wear uh, a, a button-down or collared shirt with some sort of dress pants. They can be khakis. They can be dress-down khakis, and you can uh, wear a dress shoe. Now, for ladies, that would mean uh, could you wear open-toe shoes or not? Y'all tell me, ladies. Open-toe shoes, yes. Raise your hand. Okay, no open-toe shoes for business casual. All right. Well, apparently the, the deal was no open-toed shoes uh, was relegated as business casual. Now we've evolved to business casual means that you can wear jeans to work. All right, so that meant a wardrobe change for me because I've got stacks of khakis and gray and brown and all those kind of pants, stacks of them. So much that I got another stack in a, in a Tupperware under the bed so that I can kind of rotate things through. So I decided I'm going to have to buy jeans. Went to buy jeans yesterday and, and, uh, because, you know, I only had three pair that I thought was clean enough and not unstained that I could wear to work. So, uh, I got these three jeans, pair of jeans out. They're set aside now. They're in a new stack. Need to add to the stack. So, um, I bought some Abercrombie jeans. Now, Abercrombie in, uh, 20 years ago, you were pretty cool if you wore Abercrombie. Uh, Abercrombie now, not so much cool, but they're still good enough. So every pair that I looked at had rips down one side. Like from the pocket, top of the pocket down to about middle of the pocket, it was kind of frayed out, and there would be a well-placed fray in another place, and I laid three pairs of jeans from three different companies side by side, and all three of them had the exact same rips in the exact same places from different companies. So apparently that's what is acceptable is that one rip. So you got that. Then you have the shoes that go with it. It's, it's always changing, and it's really kind of up to the – it's in the eyes of the beholder what is ex- acceptable in that way of dressing publicly. Now, I know churches deal with this. Churches uh, – I think this church uh, moved to more of a casual, business casual um, in, in, among the leadership a few years before I got here, that was the case. And uh, you're doing that in order to be relevant. Is that right? Trying to be more relevant and reach people, make them feel more comfortable. And that is admirable to do that. It's admirable to think I'm going to do something, live some way, act some way, visually let that be manifested so that I can get to the point that that... I'm having a conversation with someone. I'm not making them feel uncomfortable. I've got certain campuses I go to that I wear a suit every time. Okay, I'm not going to tell you what campuses they are. I'll leave it up to your imagination. But the, the faculty and staff and the president dress better than I ever dressed in my life. So I'm going to bring myself up to their level and to relate and have that relationship. Because I'm going to make the effort. 
going to make the effort to want to be all things to all people, the way Paul talks about, so that some might be saved. So I get that relationship built with those people so they may not, might be saved. That is a camp that it is good to be in as a church. It's good to be in where you're not uh, built, building everything. Your doctrine is not built on a facade. That your facade is needs to look a certain way. You're going to act a certain way. If you don't do those things, then you're not representing Christ appropriately. But what really matters is this about what you're going to see in this passage is there's a, there's a duality going on. And the duality is your spirit and your heart need to be inwardly changed and inwardly uh, righteous or connected with the Father or whatever way you want to explain this, you need to have a spirit life that matches your outer life. I'm going to have a relationship with the world that overflows from my relationship with Jesus. Get a gas this morning. Uh, two ladies pulled up. and I was at a, a gas station with uh, no other cars. Pretty rare for that to happen where I live. And I was getting my gas. It was nice and quiet. And this big, big car pulls up, and someone pulls up right next to them, and they're two young ladies, looks like they're headed to church, and they're talking in the parking lot. All of a sudden, one loses her mind, yelling at a car that's passing by, and she starts yelling profanities at this this uh, car that went by because they got too close to her car when they were driving by. Now, there was a, there's, there's something going on in the heart that was overflowing and became very outward. Now, us as believers, we need to be people that we care about what's happening in here in our, in our spirit life so that our spirit life looks like Jesus so that what comes out of us and how we portray ourselves and how we look and what we do is a, is a manifestation of a changed life. Now, this one, this is a difficult passage for me because I spent my life with college students, all life, all my adult life from 18 years on. And we care about being relevant. We care about being able to relate and being able to talk and to have a conversation <coughs> in a way that that it communicates the gospel well. I had uh, someone ask me about uh, one of my, my, my campus ministers. They said, I think he's out of touch and not relevant. Are, do you have a plan for that? And what I said for them was, to them, without any hesitation was, he was out of touch and irrelevant when he was 25. Because the thing changed on him. Because I was too. I can't relate and think about the same things. I don't like the same music. I don't, it just, just don't, I don't think the way that particular person that's 18 to 22, by the way, those people are radically different than those that are 27 to 32. And there's just a big difference in the people in each generation that comes through and what they value because they have get, had all this information coming into them that have shaped them to become whatever they are, and we have a larger volume of information that is shaping us. You understand? Am I, are we tracking on the same track here? Y'all understand that. Your people that have been around a while, you might could relate to someone um, just a little bit on this level, but the ones closer to your age, you relate to a lot more. We call that the battle between righteousness and relevance. Righteousness and relevance. Do you allow your relevance to be overtake you so much 
that affects the righteousness of your heart, the rightness with God. You compromise in a way that that compromises your obedience to the Lord so that you might win some. And I'm going to tell you, you don't. You don't. When you are doing that, when you're compromising in such a way that you care about that being liked and being loved more than you care about loving the Lord and being obedient, you're out of step with Scripture. We do that in all parts of our culture. It's easy for me to stand up here and point to a group of people that are doing that because I have chosen the things I I let myself get away with and let you get away with, but not necessarily let other people get away with. But other groups have chosen their own thing. <clears throat> you can look at denominations and see that and see how that shows itself. We have denominations. There's a there's a a continuum of what is acceptable in these denominations. You get one denomination of uh, Christianity of some kind, and, or they adhere that there is Jesus is the Christ, and maybe we don't agree on anything else, but that's what they say. And they believe that you have to have, as a lady, you have to have long, straight hair, no makeup, and only wear skirts all the time in public. Have you all seen a, a, a group of Christians like that? you got some, uh, and uh, we, we find them almost a novelty. Uh, you, I could say this name because they're very, they're very outspoken about it. Uh, the Amish. You look at the Amish, they've frozen themselves in a place and time in North America, and that's what they consider holy, to be that way. And you go on down through the lines, you've got one group that that says your clothes matter that much that we're going to judge you based on your clothing. Then we get to the next step, and they're going to judge you based on how you spend your wealth. And then we've got those that judge you on whether you watch movies and dance, play cards. you got another group that we're going to judge you on whether you uh, are socially conscious and give out uh, – give money to the poor and take care of those in need, but they might, that's all they see is righteous and they don't do anything else that's righteous. Then you got those that do, uh, if you show up to church and pay, uh, pay your tithe and, um, and do whatever we, we ask you to do on Sunday morning for an hour, we, you can get away with just about anything else. Then you got, okay, you see the continuum? That is the continuum of the church in North America that we're living in. Now, <clears throat> Paul is teaching something very different. Very different. So different that I'm afraid it's going to step on our toes a little bit. It's going to hurt our feelings a little bit. So I want us to look at this and I'll let you, say, let you know that this is the word speaking. And this is what God is saying to us. Paul says in verse 1, we're going to look, break it down in little tiny bites. Therefore... So this, therefore, is for all those things he said. He's referencing 11 chapters of profound doctrine, preached for most of your lifetime passages. And he he says, therefore, since all this, you've been saved by grace. You can only be saved through Jesus. The works that you do are not enough. You'll never get the law right. He's saying all these things... Therefore, since all that exists, and you can only be saved through Christ, and you are saved through Christ, since you are saved by Him, and you have a new life in Him, and you have the, the old is gone, and the new has come, therefore, I urge you. 
And the Greek word he's using here is a, a word that is used often, parakleo. Parakleo means this. It's like, like, a lot like the word paraclete, which is come alongside, like the lawyer word, the advocate, like what the Holy Spirit is for us, the paraclete. Well, Paul is using this in a more emphatic, uh, active version here. He's saying, I urge you. I'm coming along to push you along to the, so you will not set alone where you are and move to the place you need to move. You teach a kid to walk and taking them places to do things. Uh, you're, you're holding them by the hand and you're helping them get, to, and they, you know how kids will just get distracted when you're trying to get them to walk somewhere? Get all fixated on whatever that they see at the moment. They want to pick up this toy. They want to grab this flower. Or they just don't want to go. That also happens. So you pull them by the hand. And then eventually you have to reach down and, and push them from behind. And push them from behind as they're moving. And you get them out of traffic that they're facing. Whatever that traffic may be. That's what Paul's saying. I urge you to not be camped out in a dangerous place, and you need to move ahead. You need to move ahead and move on and be different than you are. You need to to take this word I've given you and allow it to transform your heart, but not only transform your heart, transform the way your body works and the things that you do, the music you listen to, the the, uh, movies you watch, the places you go, the dances you dance, whatever it might be, I want you to move forward to be like Jesus and not get parked in a place that's bad for you. So he says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, he's lumped in together, and brothers and sisters, what he has said is the converted, saved by faith Israelites and the Gentiles, which is us, that have been converted by knowing Jesus, I'm lumping you all together, and we're all one. We're all in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, and that mercy he showed us by dying on the, sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, raising him from the dead, conquering the grave. He did all those things, and then he shows us this great mercy in the middle of our wickedness. He is plucked us out and forgiven us and given us the the uh, the kingdom as our inheritance. We have the kingdom. In view of all that, I want you to listen to me for a second. That's what he's saying. Paul's saying, I need you to listen to this. In light of all he's done for you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This word sacrifice is that technical term that Israelites used to describe what they did when something was sacrificed at the altar. So here's what happens when something is sacrificed at the altar. You bring an animal in, and typically you cut its throat, it bleeds out and dies, it's offered on the, it's offered on the altar. That's um, not a harvesting of an animal. That is the sacrifice of an animal. It was giving as an, given as an offering to God, something that was of value. All that earthly value is taken away and given to the Lord. You're submitting to him something. But Paul means something different when he says it. 
When he's saying it to us, the humans that he is speaking to, he's not saying you present your bodies as a sacrifice. You're not giving your life to death. You're, sa- you're sacrificing yourself as a living human being. I present my body as a living sacrifice. Crawl up on that altar, uh, on that altar, and available to the Father. One hundred percent. Now we don't do that very well, do we? Max Lucado used to talk about that shaping by God. Uh, we would be on the anvil, and God would be hammering us, shaping us what He needs to hammer and shape us into being, and then we just crawl right off that anvil as quick as we can because we don't like the being shaped. We tend to be people who resist being changed to be like God. Now, it'd be pretty easy to get caught up in guilt in this moment because you don't see yourself. You maybe somebody that's brand new as a believer; their life is so compromised that they can't get to the place they don't see possibility they could ever get there to be completely a sacrifice. This this word, this sacrifice word here, is an ongoing process word. It means I get up, I sacrifice, I get up, I sacrifice, I wake up the next day, I sacrifice myself. I'm laying my body on the altar every single day, and things are changing. Starting to become to look more like him. I may not look like him today, like I look like him Five days from now, if I'm continually in submission to him and he, he makes me aware of things, as he's making me aware of these things, I start thinking, well, that needs to be sacrificed to the Lord because I'm let that have control of me. Now, we want to see that in other people, but we don't want to see it in ourselves. It's probably easier for me to see it in someone else than it is in myself. I can see people that compromise that say they're a believer too easy. Too easy for me. Like, how do you listen to that music? How do you? How do you listen to the new? Um, there's a new Beyonce country song. I don't know if you heard it out yet. Let's do it yesterday. How do you listen to that? I mean, the words used, the descriptions used, the tone of it. Uh, I could pick on another one. I could say, you know, Jason Aldean. I could say anybody. I could pick one for you. How do you listen to that? Because it's easy, me to see, easy for me to see it in you. Uh, it's harder for me to see it in me. It's harder for you to see it in you. We don't want to fully feel, fully know what we need to submit. Submit to the Father. We want to still keep on you know, living with one hand in heaven and one hand in hell. Present your bodies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a continual process. It's a continual process of submitting to him, not just in those first four or five years that you're saved. It's up until the very end. The very end. You're still sacrificing. Galatians 2.20, probably the best verse for this. I have been crucified with Christ. No, I no longer live. But Christ lives in me, 
The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm alive, but I'm giving my life over to him. So it's a pro, it's continual submission. This act of crawling up on the altar, you can write down, if you're writing down points, there's a couple of points for you to have. It's a decisive dedication. I am decisively, I'm making a conscious decision. I am stepping forward. I'm crawling up on that altar and I'm giving this away. It means if you have to give away some social event that matters so much to you because it satisfies something in your soul, maybe not in the deepest parts, but in the top, in a good section of it, but that social event is compromising your relationship with Jesus, compromising your witness as a believer, you need to make a decisive decision, I will no longer do that. No longer. Stepping away from it. You were talking about the, the changing of America. and I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what you said, but you reminded me of this point. Is that um, I wonder why Americans think they can have this, they can call themselves Christian. Not everybody does. That's declining. We're losing the numbers in that. There's a bunch that still do. How can they call themselves Christian but still live so worldly and love the things of the world so much? I think it's because of uh, manifest destiny. This is where I've this is the, the what I've arrived to this week. People came in and conquered America. They believed it was a God ordained thing that they could expand out to the West and take over land, kill off the people who lived there, take it away from them, kill all their buffalo, all those things they did to grab this land and move forward, move West and, and expand their culture because they believed that was their divine right as people of God to do that. So this divine creation of this, of this land is woven into the DNA of the people here and we think that we have this divine destiny to live where we are and be who we are. Um, and that has trumped any action that me, of, of being sacrificial to live more like Jesus. So we've got this, kind of this Christian undertone with devilish, devilish actions. So I'm doing this decisive dedication to give something up. Here's the second thing. It's not just your body, it's your mind. It's not just your body, it's your mind. The things you think on. So this little lady altercation in the, in the parking lot this morning, what was happening was, is the mind was grouchy. The mind was grouchy and had rights and how dare you offend me this way. What are you doing driving so close to my car? What are you doing parking there? There was five acres of parking lot on the other side of them that they could have driven through. But there was this little altercation going on because the mind was not looking like the body that was going to church. It's your body and your mind. So present your bodies as living as a living sacrifice. We're back there in Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
holy and pleasing to God. So I'm presenting my transformed mind, my transformed body, my actions, my attitudes, my sacrifice in a way that's holy. That means it's set apart. It's separate from the world. It's not joined together with unholiness. It's not uh, compromised. I'm setting that apart in a way that it's given to the Father. And when I do that, it's an act that is pleasing to God. It's a worthy offering, not a half-hearted offering. If someone came into your house and uh, they came for dinner... You didn't have anything ready to feed them, but you went into the, um, the refrigerator. And you're, you may not be this kind of person, but I know some of these people. And uh, we're not these kind of people, but we become these people once a week. And it is that we have leftovers that should have been gone yesterday. You know what I'm talking about? Man, that was a good pork roast. It should have lasted. Somebody should have eaten that. I am not throwing it away. But it's made it to the back. Not only does it have a little extra gravy that's developed on it, sitting in there over time, but it also has a little bit of something green with it too. Would you pull that out, put that in the microwave and try to kill everything in it? Do a little smell test on it? Smells all right, it's good enough. Uh, Let's put it on a platter, put it next to a fresh salad. Would you serve that up? No. You wouldn't serve that up. That's what it's like when you offer things to God half-hearted. You're offering half-hearted leftovers of a life not lived for him. So we're offering this pleasing offering, not compromised. It passes the smell test. I'm giving him my best. I'm giving him all that I got. And he says right after this, this is your true and proper worship. We've been trying to get it right in worship for a long time in the church, and we have not got it right. We've not got it right. We tried to make the music look like it needs to look to make people happy. We tried to do uh, music that's very organic and and fun, and we've done music that's overly produced and we've done sermons that have to be funny in order to be relevant and sermons that have to be look a certain way and do a certain thing and speak to a certain audience whether they're right or not let me tell you all that stuff means nothing to the father what means something to him is an offering that is wholehearted and pleasing and then that's an act of proper worship So he's saying to this, and I've read this in several versions, about ten versions of the Bible, looking at the way. And by the way, when you read read these different versions, they're interpreting words in Greek to a different uh, a different interpretation, different tense, maybe a different uh, like a thesaurus. They're picking a thesaurus and picking a few more different words to describe. And this proper worship is interpreted this way throughout all these versions: reasonable. It's reasonable for you to act this way, to worship this way, to not give half-heartedly. It's, it's sensible. That's another word used. Sensible. So it's reasonable, sensible, proper. One version says this, it's your appropriate spiritual worship to have a heart that's not compromised. It is rational 
It's a rational way of worship. In view of all these mercies, this is the rational way to worship. In view of all these uh, mercies, this is the the word said, uh, one version used, it's your intelligent way. You're not just, just winging it. This is your intelligent way to approach the Father. Give him everything. The convert, this is, I don't know what version to call this, so I call this the converted Jew Bible. It might be a better way. I'm sure there's a politically correct better way to say this. But this is what this, this version says. This is your logical temple worship for you. To these Israelites that have been converted to the kingdom, this is your new king. This is your new temple. This is your logical, rational temple worship. It's to crawl up on that altar day after day and give him everything. And then we get to verse 2. You see why I didn't make it through verse 13? There's a lot. I'm carrying the burden of this verse, by the way. I carry the burden of chapter 1 and 2 because I'm responsible for 30,000 college students that we touch. 30,000 lives that we're involved in. 30,000 people that we have sent a piece of mail to or called or, or, or whatever it may be or have a party and they show up. You got all these people, and we cannot be people that compromise the gospel. We talked a little bit about this church saying who we are as a church to this community. You have to say we do not compromise on the gospel. And we want to give it all personally to Him. So He says, do not conform. Do not conform. Stop living like that. Stop acting like that. Do not conform to the patterns and customs of the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So don't conform to the way they act and do the things they do. And here's how. Uh, here's the practical things that I struggle with on what to say to you about this. So let's just start back in December. How do we as Christians use and celebrate the Christmas season in a way that honors God and doesn't embrace pagan culture? How do you talk about the red man in the suit? How do you talk about that and still talk about Jesus? How do you celebrate the reindeer with a glowing nose? How do you do those things? What do you do? Because you need to think about it. Not telling you that it's just some innocuous thing that we can just kind of embrace and play around with, joke around with, because it matters. Because it's your doctrine. It says who you are. What you celebrate at that event says who you are, what you believe. Let's go on to the next season. I've been guilty of saying out loud. This is, this is my personal belief, and uh, you can debate me about it later on and talk me into it if you want to, but I don't think evangelicals need to celebrate Mardi Gras. Somebody drop something. <laughs> no, it, it, I thought it was somebody dropped their teeth. Uh, that, that's a good thing. Because it is a not necessarily the Christian reasons that are wrapped up in it. There's just too much else. There's just too much else. 
You got a, a parade after parade after parade that that celebrates some god as the god of that parade. And it's not Jesus. You got people living in debauchery so that they can put ashes on their forehead and let it go during Lent. Go, I can send all the way up to Tuesday. Stroke of midnight, I need to change. I've been guilty. I, mean, I love a good wreath on a door of a house. I like a good Christmas wreath. I like one for every season. we got stacks of them. I'm usually the one that helps pick them out. It's not a guy thing. It's just me, I, but I, I like it. So I really want me a purple and green and gold wreath on my door. And I tell people I don't do it because of what the Baptists in my neighborhood will say about me. Because they'll be mad about it. They'll talk bad about me. What I really don't do it is, is because I can't totally get on board that holiday. I'm not sure it honors Jesus. You go right into Easter. We don't need a big 12-foot stuffed rabbit on the front lawn of this church, do we? I had, to have, I had to have Karen talk me into eggs, hiding eggs. She said, oh, it makes sense, eggs. I mean, you're celebrating new life. And then you got the Trinity is explained by the egg. Why can't you get this? And then I, I'm saying, because it's still all wrapped up in that pagan stuff. And she said, yeah, but it's a very good portrayal of the, of who Christ is and our relationship is with him is. And she knows more about it because she's thought more about it. And she... Bakes croissants. I don't know if y'all do this in this church, but she bakes those little croissants with a marshmallow in the middle of it. Have y'all done that yet? You get croissants and wrap them up, and you put a marshmallow in the middle of it, and you put it in the oven, and the marshmallow uh, it disappears when you're baking it, and you have a little empty tomb. And they serve that in Sunday school. Talk about the empty tomb on Easter morning. That's a pretty good celebration. That's pretty uh, honoring of God. And you go right on in. Well, if Christmas is Jesus' birthday, and Easter is about the resurrection, what in the world are we doing messing with Halloween? What are we doing? All right, I've gotten personal to some people. It's about to get real personal. What are we doing putting sports more important than Jesus? Why can't we plan Wednesday night church for kids because they got ball practice? Why? Why does a tournament that lasts through Sunday at 6 take away church from kids' lives? It's because we're worldly. Church is worldly. Wanting to be in the culture more than you wanting to follow Jesus, you're not crawling up on the you're not crawling up on the altar and sacrificing. You know why the, the the American church, the Christian church in America, is not experiencing uh, persecution because persecution is the prescription from Jesus in the New Testament. We are going to suffer persecution if you follow Him. We don't suffer persecution because the church is worldly. Didn't really know who it is. One foot in heaven, one foot in hell. 
This is your true and proper worship. To not conform, stop living to the pattern of this world, the customs of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transform is morphe. Morphe is, um, really it's only used one other place in, in the New Testament, and that's on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Jesus goes up on the mount and they're transformed. He has that glorious body and he looks different. That's the word that's being talked to you about. Being used to describe us. Got to be transformed from one pattern to a new pattern. We're not the old, we're the new. Transform to a new body. Transform to a new mind. Now, the good news is, if you're not fully transformed, you can be transformed. You can get there. You can get to the place where you look like, and your family looks like, and you act like, and you have a life that looks as a, a holy and is a holy offering to the Father. All right, transformed by the renewing of your mind, then it says this, you will be able to test You'll be able to test. You can figure it out whether you're strong enough, whether you're where you need to be. I heard someone talking about, there's a, there's a place that weddings are held in my hometown. It's an old high school gym. Turned it into kind of a barn look. It's got this second floor um, balcony that has tables and chairs that overlook the dance floor. There's a stage up at the front of, the, of it, and people have weddings there. Then they have their their, uh, their catering comes in, and it's a nice place. But I have been in that party with a bunch in that part, not that party, that building with a bunch of 18-year-olds before. And let me tell you, that floor does not stand the test of it being a dance floor. They're out there jumping around, doing crazy things, and those little one by fours that are spanned between uh, two two by twelves, uh, maybe too far, are doing this. Never jump. And it's going to break someday. I'm not sure it stands the test. Does your life stand the test of being a holy sacrifice to Jesus? Test the strength of it. This word is talking about, this test is, is rooted in the word of testing the strength of steel. So you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will able to be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good and pleasing and perfect, complete, finished, mature, ripe will. Yes. You'll be able to understand him. I've been on search committees, by the way, so search committee, I think about you and pray for you all the time. I've been on higher, I, I hire people constantly for ministry. And it's it's with deep down shaking in my spirit. I want to be right in the spirit. I'm choosing someone that's going to minister. It's going to be a pastor. And I want to come to that um, that meeting selfish with an agenda. Because if I come to that meeting with a selfish agenda, it's compromised. Compromise. It tests the heart before you come to it. So when you enter into an action for the Lord, 
a sacrificed heart and mind and spirit, then he's pleased. This word uh, causes people problems. I, I think we know good. We're okay with his good. We're being good. We're okay with that. I think we're okay with pleasing God. We know we can please God with our actions. We feel like we've done that in our life to some extent. But perfect, man, we've done his perfect will. That's a tough word. The root of the word perfect here is this. It's the completed. It's the finished product. It's the mature action. If you're not there yet, you've not grown to this point yet, I want to tell you, if you keep crawling up on that altar day after day after day, you absolutely will be complete in him and mature. You can understand his will. You can understand his will. Karen was right. I went, I've gone from preaching 25 minutes to 40 minutes. That's why she's not here. Now, Lily had another problem last night. But. So here we are examining our hearts. And there was a book written back, uh, I believe, late 70s by Robert Munger. You may have copies of this in the library here. You may have one on your own. It's called My Heart, Christ, My Heart, Christ Home. My Heart, Christ Home. And it's an allegory about how You invite Jesus into your house, and as you invite Jesus into your house, he gets to see everything. You've got your rooms that are in good order. You go to the dining room, it's in good order. You go to the living room, it's in pretty good order. Mine would not be. I'd have to pick up kids' toys for an hour. Uh, You get all that done, get them put away. Then you go to the kitchen, it's in order, and that's fine. You go to the bedroom, and that's in order. You go to the bathroom, and it's clean, and it's in order. And you go all through the house, and... Then you've got this, Jesus walks by and there's this closet that you don't open for anyone. And it's spring-loaded because it's so packed. You, you twist the knob a little bit and you say, Jesus, I don't know if I'd look in there. Jesus opens up that and says, I want this room clean. I want the secret parts of your heart. The things that you think you're hiding from me, I have seen them. The things that you don't, that you're ignoring yourself that are there, I know them. And I want you to submit that to me and lay that on the altar. And when you submit that and lay that on the altar, you're going to be filled with a joy that you've not known. Because you'll be set free. You'll be set free. Jesus not only came that you'd be free, but you'd be free indeed. That's what's going to happen this time of invitations. I want, to, I want us to look into the closet. To look deep down in the closet and see what needs to be sacrificed. Laid on the altar to the Father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today that you have spoke to our heart about some things that we need to lay on the altar and trust you with shown us some areas of compromise that we need to, need to get out of our lives and some areas of conformity to the world that need to go away for us. And, Father, some things that we're doing that, are, that we're blinded to, Lord, that we want to give it over to you. And as we've been made aware, Father, we'll pray that we'd have discipline 
courage to give it to you. Lord, there are people that are listening to this that have not given anything to you. Maybe some mental assent, but no spiritual. And Lord, that right now they want to give their heart and mind to you and become followers of Jesus. So they might know all this joy, this joy that comes from obedience. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about the church, including contact information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Thank you for listening and may God bless you.